Then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord that hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood our life hath bought. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. The Cliff Walk in Newport, Rhode Island, is one of the more dramatic sights in New England. Perched at the edge of the Atlantic Ocean on a cliff that is 70 feet high in some places are several palatial vacation homes built by some of the robber barons and industrialists of the 19th century. The grandest of them all is the Breakers, a 70-room cottage built by the railroad tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt II. The stark natural beauty and architectural pomposity of the cliff walk makes it a popular tourist destination, and visitors can often be found walking along the path as the waves froth and crash at the base of the cliff several stories below. When I was around seven years old, my family took a trip to Newport, and was among the tourists exploring the cliff walk. My brother was an infant, and I suspect this was one of the first family trips we took after he was born. Because of my brother's age-related neediness, my parents were not necessarily devoting their full attention to my whereabouts. Now, at this point, I should probably mention that I had a tendency to wander when I was a child, (laughs) I enjoyed exploring and would often be surprised when I turned around and realized that my parents were nowhere to be seen. In the moment, this never seemed like a huge deal to me. After all, I always knew where I was. My parents didn't always see things that way. So it was that during one diaper change pit stop on our visit to the cliff walk, I decided that I was done waiting and continued along the path on my own. I remember plucking a wildflower from my mother and thinking that I needed to find a place where I could water it. And so I continued along my merry way, oblivious to the fact that my parents were frantically looking for me. Their fear was not unfounded. The Cliff Walk's official website notes, in spots just a couple feet from the path are abrupt drops of over 70 feet. Wild bushes and weeds often hide this danger. My father later told me that while he was looking for me, he kept peering over the edge of the cliff to see if my little seven-year-old body had been dashed against the rocks. When he finally caught up to me, He accosted me with that strange mixture of relief, anger, and concern that is typical of worried parents. And as a parent myself, I am entirely sympathetic to their concern, and I was properly chastened by their anger, well, until the next time I wandered away, at least. But I also remember being surprised by how worried my parents were. Didn't they know I knew where I was the whole time? In our gospel reading this morning, the young Jesus exhibits a somewhat similar tendency to wander. His family, along with a number of other friends and relatives, have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem 
for the feast of the Passover. After the festivities, Mary, Joseph, and their companions begin the trek back to Galilee, in all likelihood assuming that Jesus was in the care of an aunt or uncle. But after a day or so, they realize that he has been left behind, and they hurry back to Jerusalem, where they find Jesus sitting among the rabbis and plumbing the depths of Scripture. Mary accosts her son with a mixture of relief, anger, and concern, and says, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And Jesus' response is striking for its dismissiveness, even its petulance. Why were you even searching for me? Didn't you know I have to be in my father's house? <laughs> Those who have preteens at home probably recognize the tone. But after this interaction, Jesus returns to his home where Luke, where his home where Luke tells us that he was obedient to his parents and that he grew in divine and human favor. Now, it would seem that this story is simply a way of revealing that there was at least one moment in which Jesus gave his parents a hard time, and that more importantly, he understood that God was his true father. But there is a detail in this story that points to a deeper reality. Towards the end of this passage, we are told that Mary treasured these things in her heart. On one level, this is a perfectly anodyne and sentimental statement, the kind of thing one might find in a baby shower card. Treasure every moment, even when you're trying to get them to fall asleep at 2 o'clock in the morning. But on another level, this phrase deliberately echoes the account of Jesus' birth. When Luke tells us that Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. This incident in the temple, in other words, is meant to recall all that was announced at the Nativity. That God's eternal purpose had been disclosed in the person of Jesus. What's more, the reference to Mary treasuring these things in her heart recalls when Jesus was presented in the temple when Simeon accosted Mary with these foreboding words, this child will be destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. In this moment, Simeon hints at both Jesus' violent destiny and Mary's grief. So by telling us that Mary treasured these things in her heart in the gospel passage we heard this morning, Luke is reminding us who Jesus is and what the nature of his mission will be. Jesus walking away from his parents in the temple foreshadows the time he will walk down the road to Calvary. Mary losing Jesus for the day 
foreshadows the moment when she will lose him to the evil powers of this world. This story of Jesus in the temple reveals the painful truth at the heart of the incarnation, that Jesus' birth was on some level preparation for his death. And this is the undercurrent of the Christmas story, the story on which we have been meditating for the last nine days. Throughout our Christmas celebrations is the subtle but persistent reminder that what began in that stable in Bethlehem is going to end badly. And this is not just because Jesus runs afoul of the political and religious authorities, but because life in general is often intolerably cruel. The anxiety that Mary felt in the temple, the fear that my parents felt at the cliff walk, both were tied to an innate acknowledgement that the world is a scary place, that we can't keep our kids safe forever. And in the face of the pain we encounter on a daily basis, it can be tempting to become hard-hearted, to give in to despair and conclude that life is meaningless. And yet, during the Christmas season, we affirm that God became part of this painful and wondrous story. By becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, God proclaimed well, that we are worth the risk. That life, that life is worth the risk. And this is no small thing. God's determination that life is worth experiencing frustrates our very human impulse to see life as meaningless. The great mystery of the incarnation is the recognition that this life for all of its trials and uncertainties, that this life is a gift. Today is the second Sunday after Christmas. And even as the rest of the world has put away its holiday finery and wiped the slate clean for the civic new year, the church stubbornly insists that Christmas continues, even as the poinsettias start to surrender their petals, even as the candles melt away. And I have to say that even though I'm tired of singing angels we have heard on high, <laughs> this seems right to me. Because even as the world returns to the way things were before the church continues to remind the world that even in the drudgery and the Januaryness of January, life is a precious gift. Because God chose to share this life with us in the person of Jesus Christ. The truly glorious thing about our faith 
is that it allows us to reckon with the reality of our mortal nature. The pain of this world. And respond not with despair, but with joy. Merry Christmas.